Welcome to Change the Story, Change the World, a chronicle of art and community transformation. So, what comes to mind when you hear someone mention arts and aging? Craft activities at the Senior Center, old tunes sung around the piano at the assisted living facility? Well, yes, of course, but like many things in our fast-changing world, there's much more to the expanding arts and aging universe than old stereotypes. In the rapidly growing creative care field, the arts are increasingly seen as a powerful and effective prescription for reducing isolation, healing trauma, promoting vital and essential social connections, mitigating and delaying the symptoms of dementia, and also changing the way we all think about aging. That's the path that's been forged by this episode's guest, educator, researcher, and MacArthur Fellow, Anne Basting through her study and practice at the crossroads of arts and aging. A journey that has allowed her to pioneer new approaches to the challenges and opportunities facing societies whose populations are living longer and surprise, surprise, getting older. This is Change the Story, Change the World. My name is Bill Cleveland. Part one, life's mission. Anne Basting, welcome to the show. Let's begin with the begin, which today is, where are you calling from? I am joining you from Shorewood, Wisconsin, which if I have been doing my push-ups, I, my arm is strong <laughs> enough to throw a rock into Lake Michigan. And we are the first village north of Milwaukee, mm -hmm. and that is the traditional homelands of the Potawatomi the Ho-Chunk, and the Menominee. And we are on what they call the southwest shores of Michigan, that beautiful lake. It's actually the largest freshwater system of lakes in North America. And there's also three rivers that come together here, the Milwaukee, the Menominee, and the Kinnikinnik. And the people here of Wisconsin's Anishinaabe, Ho-Chunk, Menominee, Oneida, and Mohican nations are vibrantly and vitally present. Mm. I'm actually on a place that didn't used to be an island and is, Alameda. And before it was an island, it was the land of the Ohlone people. And because we're on the edge of the North American continent, it is also the waters of the Ohlone people mm. who fished it at a time when it was much more abundant than it is now. So, Anne, now that we've placed ourselves geographically, why don't we start by defining the landscape of your work? Do you have a, a name or a word that comes to mind when you think about your journey on this planet? You know, one of my many hats is with Time Slips, the nonprofit that I founded 25 years ago. And for a while, I toyed with calling myself the CEO, which was the chief enchantment officer. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah. I like that. It's a vintage street name, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Great. So what is, what did you describe to the guy sitting on the airplane next to you who says, hey, hey, what do you do? <laughs> I think after... God, 25, 30 years of this. I, I have so many different hats that I wear. I think if I boil it all down, it comes to 
that I invite people to access their own creativity. And then I co-create with them. And I do it in a way that is interpersonal. And I, I try to model that as a communication technique. And then I also do it in a way that can have radical, transformative public sharing potential. And I try to hold those two things simultaneously as much as I can without exploding. <laughs> but I think the whole thing of, of focusing on reinvigorating the human capacity for creativity, some people have had it stripped away or their confidence in their capacity stripped away. And some people's creativity, even if it hasn't been stripped away, it's discounted or devalued. So I think I try to invite people to access their creativity, and then I work with them to feel it and shape it and direct its power. Now, the long story short, how did you end up doing what you're doing? What's the path? <laughs> Where did you grow up, actually? I grew up in a town called Janesville, Wisconsin, wow. which is about 90 minutes from here. And I grew up in the triangle between Milwaukee, Madison, and Chicago. And my parents had theater tickets to stages in all three cities. So I grew up in the arts, even though nobody in my immediate family was in the arts. I'm the child of lawyers and teachers. So I came to this work out of a deep love of what creativity did for me personally, which was enable me to create worlds in which I felt accepted and empowered. Because <laughs> as a kid, I, I spent a lot of time alone. I, I loved being in the world of the imagination. I did visual art. I did writing. I did acting through the 4-H club. I was in three-girl band where we played guitars and wrote our own songs and sang pretty badly. And yeah, I just, I loved every aspect of it. And I went on and did in undergrad a English major with creative writing as my thesis and also did a lot of visual art, a lot of photography, a little bit of a jack of all arts and wanted to keep doing it, but also has as the child of lawyers and teachers, a very practical streak said, I probably need a, a support mechanism for that. And that was to get, get a PhD. And so I was doing the creative work, writing plays, shaping plays in ensemble, and simultaneously doing the critical thinking and scholarly work from the academic side. What was your dissertation about? <laughs> that is so sweet of you to ask. I promise not to bore you. It was about representations of aging in everyday life and in more theatricalized representations. So I, I followed around the senior theater groups across the country and did a lot of interviews and saw some really magnificent work. I wrote about Kazuo Ono, the Butoh dancer, who was in his late 80s at the time when I saw him. Carol Channing, who performed in Hello, Dolly!, in her 70s, and all about trying to exactly reproduce the role that she premiered 
in her 40s, which was already considered old. That's what I wrote about. And essentially boiling it down to the theory that performance, the literal taking on of a new role, can change the way in this country we think about aging because it was regarded at the time as increasing rigidity and decline. I think those narratives are still underneath our views. We tend toward these bifurcated exceptionalism, water skiing grandmas, you know, and yes. and then the assumption that everyone is has dementia. And the jokes are rampant now with mm-hmm. Biden and the politicization of aging. So, yeah. So you're in theater. You, you saw your path to a Ph.D., you picked such an obvious topic. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I always have two responses to that question. The first is, it's totally normal. <laughs> That's my life's mission, to have that be the actual answer. It's totally wow. normal for yeah. a person at 25 to want to look at representations of aging. The other answer to that is back to the kid who was doing the arts. My mother put me in art classes with people two and maybe three generations older than myself. So they were my creative peers. (laughs) And I just, I don't remember there being a moment when I felt uncomfortable around older people. I didn't have that same thing that drives people to say, you know, isn't that depressing work? You know, Mm -hmm. I just never had that. Part two, Penelope and the Marlboro Man. So Anne, there's so many stories I know that you could tell. And what I'm interested in is whichever one you pick is really knowing the once upon a time version of the story. The reason for this is Often people cut to the chase, you know. I won an Academy Award, that's what it was. No, I no. wish that was the story. <laughs> yes, well, a MacArthur is no small thing, so you've had close to the equivalent and actually maybe something more valuable, and I tip my hat to you for that. That's kind, thank you. Yeah, and it really has to do with what personifies the path you described as an enchantress. I feel like I'm so fortunate. And in order to explain a couple of the moments that I'll point you to, I want to say that the core impulse and wellspring of the work that I do is is improvisation. And, you know, sweeping a circle uh, in a place that doesn't usually allow this or where it doesn't usually exist or isn't seen as existing and then inviting people into that circle where you can create out of it. And what that does is allows you to respond so organically in the moment to everything that's happening and building on what's there. And that is what these moments signify, I think, is just how far you can take that (laughs) from interpersonal work into systems work. like putting improvisation into systems and getting people who are running the systems to realize that they also have this capacity. Actually, I haven't told this story in a long time, so it's a delight to do it. So it's a story of the generative moment of letting go of the expectation of memory. The very first time I came upon the improvisational technique, which 
was volunteering in a locked Alzheimer's unit. Absolutely no expectation of even expression, let alone imagination. <laughs> so this was 1996 in, in mm-hmm. Milwaukee, actually. I was here my first year out of the PhD on a fellowship in age studies. And I wanted to test my theory of my dissertation. I was turning it into a book and I was like, you know, I get the transformative potential. I see it. But all those representations were of people without visible or cognitive disabilities. So I wanted to go test it. And to test it, I found myself on that locked unit of of a nursing home that was pretty bleak. And week after week, my hearty little band of four men and women gathered around the table in the common room, barely able to lift their heads and look at me. And I was trying the techniques of the time, which were very focused on memory. And it just never worked. Nothing, I couldn't spark a connection. Nothing was coming of it. I mean, I was doing the acting thing of like trees, you know, wind and memories of holidays and pets and all all kinds of stuff. And then I just brought an image in one day and said, we're done with memory. It's mean to ask you to remember things actually. Let's just make something up together. Absolutely anything you say to me, I am going to write down an echo. And I just said that over and over and over. And, and they responded to the image. It happened to be at the Marlboro Man, a picture from a magazine, and asked them for a name. And it was Fred. Fred who? Fred Astaire. Where, where do you want to say he lives? Oklahoma. We sang Oklahoma. It went on for 45 minutes, and it was a beautiful, poignant, funny, joyful, sad, all of it in a big soup. Some of it didn't make sense, but I repeated it anyway, just to show them that I was serious about writing down anything that they said and repeating anything they said. So two years later, I got a fellowship to test and replicate that and see if, was that just a freak thing that I could do that week after week at volunteering? I mean, I got about two dozen stories out of it and Mm. I wanted to see if we could do it. I, I set up the fellowship for two places in Milwaukee and two in New York. And then I would take the stories that came out because they were magical and turn them into plays and an art exhibit and roundtable discussions in the field to try to get people to say, oh my God, how, how do we do this? I remember really clearly, it felt for a while like there were two broken parts, that the stories and the story sh- sessions were these magical places with the people with dementia and and the staff who was learning this. You know, They were totally enthralled with the ability just to... to make magic out of nothing, literally, <laughs> literally nothing. And and then the plays, which were these wild flights of imagination. And it felt like they were two separate pieces. And I, I really wanted to see if you could bring those two things together. And that became the Penelope Project, which we 
we just staged the workshops inside the care community and then took all of the creative things that happened over the year of those creative sessions and built it into a play. And it was performed with and by the staff, the residents, absolute radical concept of chorus, which was no rehearsal. Anyone who wants to perform in it can come in and be there and perform play the the part of Penelope welcoming Odysseus home and in the final piece. Yeah, I think to me seeing that final moment with the chorus of staff, family members, residents, a, a woman who was totally visually impaired, a gentleman with a stroke who could not lift his hands above his head, his wife who was in independent living and never got to participate with him, staff members, and then the professional artists who were with Sojourn Theater doing the call and response of the hand motions that had been choreographed by the elders themselves. You are the ones that make this place home. If the gods will grant us a happier old age, It was a, a welcoming home of the stranger, Odysseus, with such beauty and generosity that the, the feeling in the room of the audience was it just, it was like a sacred space in which to sob. There was just ripples of sobbing would happen as though they felt welcomed and they understood that that welcoming could happen from someone who didn't recognize you. It was, uh, it was a really profound moment for me in the, the bringing together of all the levels of the work that I do. And a perfect story to have picked because it really is a, a metaphor for everything that you're describing. There are so many circumstances in the world in which you are operating where, you know, the guest, the host, the stranger, who we love, how we love, what love is, what belonging is, what othering is. All those things just caught up in one powerful moment. You know, one of the things about the Penelope Project that particularly rose up for me, and there's actually a quote from you. You said, that it sailed directly against the prevailing winds in long-term care, which is activities that are one-off, you know. And this is my soapbox, which is, from my background, we call it institutionalization, the good kind, which is building it into the regular practice of a place. And your approach, which is not just a common do a song and a dance, but actually to say, oh, these are communities. We're going to try and influence them all to acknowledge and embrace this as a powerful resource for what they're up to. <laughs> Not some extra added entertainment, 
but actually a direct path to outcomes that many of the staff there probably couldn't even imagine. Could you talk about that idea of really taking on a system rather than just bringing a resource? Yeah, I think that is that is where I feel thrilled these days to and to to I think have really trained my eye to to see the assets of systems that can be expanded um, to build so that you're never asking that system to actually change, <laughs> just widen so that more meaning making and connection can flow through it. And there was another moment in the Penelope project where, and some of my collaborators will remember, so we finally got the CEO and the head of the nursing home, all the heads of all the areas of care, because they all, they're all budgeted separately and managed separately. So assisted living, skilled care, adult day, and independent living. And we are all sitting in the same room and the CEO said, what's the goal of this project? And I said, it's to improve the quality of life of everyone who lives, works, and visits Luther Manor. And he reached into his briefcase and he pulled out this purple piece of paper. He goes, that's funny. That's our mission. I said, oh my goodness. <laughs> Perfect alignment. <laughs> so uh, we started from there. And I've now come to see this as a long period of asset mapping where you actually ask people how they're creative in their everyday life. And places that aren't built with creativity in mind are sitting on mounds and mounds of creative capacity. They just have no idea because they don't ask anybody. <laughs> it's really funny. We did this in the 12 nursing homes in rural Kentucky. And one of my collaborators, Nicole Garneau, came back from leading an asset mapping group and said, um, you know what? The entire building maintenance team has a heavy metal bluegrass band. <laughs> I was like, that's awesome. <laughs> they had no, nobody knew. And even the residents, you know, one of the residents in one of the Kentucky homes had been a theater director, like totally pulling on your skill set, you know? So um, I think you can tell, I just, I love this part of it of surprising the system to see itself differently and to to enable it to, to build into the creative project itself, the next phase. So it's like you're, you're hooking it into the forward momentum. In the Kentucky project, we staged a reimagining of Peter Pan. Penelope was of course, Homer's Odyssey. I've done mm -hmm. Little Women, beautiful questions projects. And then this one was Peter Pan. And at the end we said, what story do you all want to tell next? And then, as as Wendy and the crocodile were flying away at the end of the piece. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> of course they were. Because the final number is I'll fly away with all the, the local musicians. And, you know, Wendy was on hospice, so we're bidding her farewell. Um, a new character comes in from this next story and is checking in to to the nursing home. <laughs> And it was Dorothy from Wizard of Oz. It was Huck Finn. It was 
Goodness, who were the other ones? Oh, and then the final one was Abraham Lincoln, because Hodgenville, Kentucky was the birthplace of Abraham Lincoln. So they wanted to tell his story. So it takes all the creative capacity also to identify the creative strengths and then to figure out where and how to lock it in. As Anne has mentioned, one of the prime vehicles for her work over these many years with care systems and agencies has been the organization called Time Slips. Here's an excerpt from a video describing their unique approach. Here is a little video, if I can make it work. What is Time Slips? We are a nonprofit inspiring a global movement to bring meaning and joy to late life through creative engagement. Let me show you what I mean. When the changes that come with aging meet the demands of our daily lives, it can be difficult to connect. Even if we want to connect, it can be hard to know how. When we do try to connect, our impulse is to draw on the past. But for people with memory loss, this approach can lead to shame and embarrassment. Focusing on who the person was, rather than accepting and valuing who they are now. Time Slips offers another approach to shift from the expectation of memory to the freedom of imagination. In the emotional and symbolic language of the arts, there are no wrong answers. People we thought might be lost to us, we can reach with sound and movement, with words and images. Part three, yes and. Obviously, one of the important aspects of your work as an improviser is yes and, and it it just occurs that that's what you're saying to this organization is not, oh, we have a, a completely new retrofit we're going to do and change your culture completely. No, we're going to build right on top of it. And these assets are bountiful and plentiful and not all that expensive. <laughs> no, it's very inexpensive. And also, I think to train their own eyes to see the limitations that they put on themselves because care settings are, I describe them like alien spaceships that come and land and are completely worlds unto themselves. Often they'll bring in visitors and family members and volunteers, but there really isn't a deeper connectivity even to the block that they're on. It's bizarre. And if they can conceptualize themselves as a, a cultural center, where if you're doing a really interesting project, family members will want to come in and actually co-create with you. And the same thing with volunteers. They're not, they're not coming in and dropping off their fabulousness and then leaving. They're co-learning and co-creating with you. And also to connect that system to existing rituals of celebration within the larger community so mm -hmm. that, you know, one example is this great care home system on the Sunshine Coast in British Columbia, which got itself on the gallery walk so that it would be perceived differently. And then they co-create with professional artists and they're, they're legit on the gallery tour. There's a quote here, which reiterate, I believe it's in an article you wrote, what if programming in nursing homes was so compelling, so intriguing that family members asked if they could join in and school groups started to compete for volunteer slots and nearby arts organizations started calling to ask when they could partner. There's an, another organization and there's a two-part episode that we have about an organization in the Twin Cities, not too far from you, called Pillsbury House. Have you heard of Pillsbury House? Oh, sure. House? Yeah. 
sure. Yeah, their model as a social service agency is to yep. be a, a community creative center as a permanent fixture that people go, let's go over to Pillsbury House. You know, we don't have anything wrong with us. We have something we'd like to do that might be fun. <laughs> Yeah. And I I think that's also training one's eye on, like I said, the framing and the limitations and just where and how drastically separate the arts and culture have been pulled apart from medical frameworks and social service frameworks and how that is that's imaginary. You know, that we can work on. And it's happening in really interesting ways right now that I think it's a really interesting time for that. Well, and it's full circle, too, because our part of human history is a little drop. And for most of human history, the things you're talking about were absolutely connected. Nobody would think of of separating the spirit, the culture, the healing, or any of that stuff. No, in Um, some of my talks, I I start, I have a slide side by side of the first hospital outside of Philadelphia as this, you know, separate fortress. And at the same time was the creation of the Smithsonian, the the museum in DC, which is, is, (laughs) yeah, it's bizarre. And then from then on, we built these fortresses of separateness. And then I feel like it's a long, slow, slow crawl back toward each other and toward integration. Absolutely. So one of the things that really jumped out at me that's been a real touchstone for me is the arts as research. You work in the academy and the academy is, is typically not particularly partial to creative based research. But that is at the heart of what you're up to, not just research to another end, but unto itself as well. Could you talk about that idea of how art making and exploration and curiosity all combine in in a creative research? Sure. I mean, it's a it's a broad topic, actually, because I yeah. think that there's multiple avenues for using and doing arts as research. One, arts as the methodology like what we tried to do in Kentucky. You know, what's your hypothesis? Can you can you change the perception of a stigmatized health system and open it to greater flexibility and increase wellness by infusing the creative process into its practices and instilling a sense of creative confidence and permission to integrate creativity. I think that's a big part of it. It has to come from the top. And so that's the heartbeat of what I do. And, you know, Time Slips, the nonprofit is now doing a 10 city pilot, 10 program, because sometimes they're beyond cities, with National Meals on Wheels America to infuse creative engagement practices into their well-check phone calls and their driver delivery systems based on the islands of Milwaukee work that we did in collaboration with Sojourn. And that that's another research question. Can you infuse meaningful meaning-making and enhance cre- connectivity by infusing creativity into delivery systems for yeah, social service. care? And, yeah. you know... The, the question is, are you always going to be stuck in pilot mode with this? Or because these tend to be so organically structured, is generalizable knowledge even possible from it? That's a big question. I'm really thankful right now for the 
deep research in social isolation because that research, which is pretty, you know, traditionally gold standard structured, is is generalizable across almost all populations now. And as I was just talking to somebody, I said, we do need more research, but I equate it with food. Food is now really widely recognized as a social determinant of health. Do you have a, a stable food source? Those are integrated into across social care and health care. And we know that people die without food. We can do a lot of research on the exact nutrients for the different kinds of food or is some food better than other food, but we know we're going to die without it. And that's where I am right now with the social connectivity and meaning making is we know from the pandemic, we're going to die without meaningful social connection and joy will wither and there's not thriving. And then there's literally just letting go and we can do a lot more research and we should on the nuances. Is it dance? Is it music? You know, these nuances of how it's going into the brain and what it's doing. But like food, we just need it. We have to get it into the systems. And I I feel like that's where I am with the research now. We, We should keep doing it, but we should also really just be working on getting it into the systems now at this point. Yeah, I keep thinking about people who have either volunteered or have a very low-paying job, Meals on Wheels. And those are everyday people who probably don't think of themselves as a cultural practitioner or delivery system, but they're walking through the door into a story every time they walk in there that has that same promise that you described. And in, in a certain way, if because this is the way I, I thought about, I've thought about almost all my inter- institutional interventions, is that the community is the delivery system. As you say, in your senior center, it's all your staff, it's all the family of the people who live there, obviously the people who live there, and the neighbors that are around that, that's an ecosystem. Part four, social prescriptions. So, I'm assuming that you're already investigating ways of of training up, engaging, influencing, and collaborating with these people on the front lines in the trenches of these delivery systems. How does that how does that go? How does that work? It's been set back quite a bit by the pandemic, honestly, yeah. because I, there's some trauma. And you know, even something as joyful as creative connection, they People can't take in anything new. It's going to go on for a while. And the systems themselves are traumatized. The long-term care, skilled care is consolidating and going bankrupt. And staffing is, you know, at 200% turnover. And the burnout is unbelievable. So I've shifted my focus. Like Time Slips is still training and trying to help as many institutions like that as they can, because they that's exactly what they need. It's just, they have to be able to take it in. I'm turning toward people, allowing that sector to recover a little bit, and then turning toward the, the people living at home, which is the vast majority, like 85% of older adults and even people with cognitive challenges are living at home, and trying to help simultaneously 
build and nurture and foster the creative capacity of what's called the memory cafe structure, which are these just informal gatherings that can happen in libraries or cultural institutions or just programming where... <laughs> Hang on. Can you hear that? <laughs> I certainly can. Okay. <laughs> Ann Basing has a real house with a real dog. A real dog. dog. <laughs> He's big. He's a big, goofy dog. You're a good boy. So... The memory cafe structure is where I really see a lot of hope right now with the, they, their memory cafes and libraries gold around the country and in arts and culture institutions, but they can dramatically grow. And as they grow, have the, the training in creative engagement infused into them. That's a current obsession. <laughs> could you could you describe a memory cafe if I were to come and be a part of one? What would it be like? Sure. The one in my village meets once a month and it meets at the grocery store, has a little cafe and it meets there. It's usually like in a quieter time, two o'clock and caregiver, partner, care partner and older adult who might be experiencing some cognitive challenges or people who are just isolated. Um, would gather. Um, somebody facilitates in our village. It's uh, someone from the senior center services and people wear name tags. It's a place where they can talk and have some coffee for about 20 minutes. It opens up into some kind of programming, oftentimes creative, something of interest that they could share in. And then it closes out with a little more social time. It's a place where people feel comfortable, not stigmatized. So oftentimes it's outside of the senior services kind of locations. Um, they used to be in our British pub down the street, but it got a little loud. So they moved it to <laughs> grocery store, libraries, botanic gardens, all kinds of different organizations host them. There's about 900 of them across the United States right now. Last summer, WKBW-TV paid a visit to a memory cafe at the Westfall Center for the Arts in Buffalo, New York. Here's a bit of what they found. There's just something about music that it, when you get the right, the right song, they really know how to touch the heart. Yeah. They touch my heart. <laughs> the memory cafe is a free uh, music concert and lunch for caregivers and their loved ones with dementia and Alzheimer's. A traditionally, a respite program is sort of a drop-off and you go get some shopping done or some chores. This is a, something you experience together. It's the feel. It's the rhythm. I think they, they feel the rhythm, which brings the words back because they're all kind of connected. And, you know, the lyrics have a rhythm to them, a cadence, and the, the rhythm of the guitar or whatever the instrument is going on. Um, you know, I think they just, they just remember. It's in them. And I think that's really special. When you were coming here with your wife, how did it help her? How did it help you? Well, we're six years into uh, her dementia diagnosis. She knows all the songs still, and we still sing all the oldies together in the car. And so this was a real outlet for us and a chance to kind of like live almost normal for those that hour. Sorry. There's a group nationally called the Percolator, which supports cross-peer 
support across all of those memory cafes and they share best practices in in programming and in recruitment and PR and promotion and all those different things, training the volunteers. One of the, the problems, I think, lingering impact from the pandemic has been a real drop in volunteerism, which is hitting everyone. But the rising social prescribing movement is what I'm obsessed with trying to raise the memory cafe structure system as the social prescribing movement is rising so they could meet each other as they mm. both continue to grow. I think this is important. It, it seems like one of your chief enchantment officer powers is, as you said earlier, helping institutions and communities see their hidden or ignored assets and then connect the dots that are needed to activate and leverage those assets. The memory cafes are one of those assets. The social prescription movement is another powerful one that both identifies assets and connects the dots. You know, through curative pathfinders, people who are trained to listen and learn and then point people and communities to resources that the folks need, like legal advice or volunteer help or a food pantry or a senior theater group. Now is definitely the time for this to happen. It's just so obvious that a condition which was hidden in senior centers or whatever, isolation, and is now a national epidemic based on our recent experience. And one of the things that, that you describe the arts as very simply and basically as a way of bringing people into relationships with each other and not as a, a nice to have, but as an essential. And so... Could you just talk a little bit about how you think what you know helps us meet where we are in the transition from pandemic into what's next? I think we're in a situation where we we have to mine the imagination, not just for health, for us currently living, but for the health of the future of things and people that are living <laughs> I think we're in a situation where all, all imagination on deck for the current and future for land, water, animals, humans, the dynamics between and across them. We need all the Im imagination we can get. Um, there's the fostering of imagination for social connectivity and well-being that then improves the polis, you know, it's not just the individual. So I think it's an investment in mobilizing the creativity on an individual basis with benefit for health, but also benefit for the community at large. I usually try to end with recommendations. Any, any works of art or imagination recently that have really thrilled you that you'd like to share with other people? I am falling down the rabbit hole with some collaborators on... We don't want to call it The Little Prince, but their ideas inspired by it about learning to see the inside. We're calling it within a single rose. And I just haven't felt that creative inspiration like that for a while. So Jeff Becker, my one of my collaborators in Iega, Iega Jeff, who's a choreographer. Jeff's a mm -hmm. site-specific set designer. It's just really a joy. And I play music and listen to a lot of music. And I've become obsessed with the song Who Knows Where the Time Goes 
for many reasons you can imagine and as I tend to do when I get obsessed with a song I listen to many versions of it and right now the Judy Collins version is my my go-to if if you ever drive past me and you see me just weeping and singing simultaneously that's what's happening um, and then I've I've been reading my mother's letters my mother was was have to say was she's still with us but she was a prolific letter writer and I just found another stash of them that um a, a colleague of mine approached me a couple maybe seven years ago saying his mother Carolyn was really lonely and she was living in a care community and she wanted to start a theater company so could I talk with her and so I did, and it became clear to me that her loneliness was a level that I, I could not address. And I said, Mom, would you, would you take on a pen pal? And she did. And now then when Carolyn passed, my colleague just asked me, do you want those letters? I have them all. And so I've been reading them, and she wrote every week for couple of years and it's just amazing so that's been really inspiring me in multiple ways too i bet a couple things before we leave are you familiar with brian boyd he's written a book called on the origin of stories no huh the subtitle is evolution cognition and fiction and it's a comprehensive theory of story and one of his case studies on the origin of stories is the Odyssey. And another one is Horton, here's a who. Oh, <laughs> see, that's right up my alley. Whimsy <laughs> and seriousness all folded in on itself. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And the other thing I wanted to share with you is Liz Lehrman's new piece called Wicked Bodies that she talked about a few weeks ago in episode 64. It is actually about the criminalization of the feminine. Yeah. And the celebration of this incredible, deep, abiding wisdom that we need desperately now. Yeah. <laughs> and in many ways, that's what you're calling up, this kind of thing into a world that, that really sorely needs it. And thank you so much you're welcome. for, for it's the good work. A treat to, to chat. And to your listeners, thanks again for tuning in. And if you're interested in grabbing a copy of Anne's newest book called Creative Care, a revolutionary approach to dementia and elder care. We'll be sharing a link for that book in our show notes. On a personal note, I'd like to let you know that after a couple of years here blathering away, we're happy to say that we have a pretty solid audience, which is both gratifying and encouraging, so much so that we're keen to expand it. So if you'd like to help us do that, there are a few things you might do. First, please share the show regularly with your community and subscribe if you haven't already. Next, if you have any ideas about how we might connect with fellow travelers out there, you know, newsletters, mailing lists, local arts organizations that might want to embed a podcast that showcases change-making artists on their website, let us know at csac at artandcommunity.com. That's artandcommunity.com, which is all one word and all spelled out. Also, if you have any ideas for guests or improvement to what we're up to here, drop us a line. We'd be grateful. Store, store, store.
Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. Our soundscape and theme are a miraculous manifestation of the extraordinary musical imagination of Judy Munson. Our text editing is by Andre Nebe. Our special effects come from freesound.org. And our inspiration, as always, comes from the mysterious and ever-present spirit of Ook 235. Until next time, stay well, do good, and spread the good word. <laughs> <laughs>